Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. Religion plays, and has always played, a crucial role in American life. But it's also common knowledge that church attendance and even religiosity generally are now in decline in the United States. For example, in a Pew Research survey conducted in 2018 and 2019, 65% of American adults said they would describe themselves as Christian, and that was down by 12% in the past decade. The portion of Americans who identify as religiously unaffiliated is now at 26%, up from 17% in 2009. So what's causing this decline? In a new study from the American Enterprise Institute, demographer Lyman Stone helps answer. This in-depth report uncovers the history of religious life dating back 400 years ago and shows how secular education is likely playing a large role in declining religiosity. This week, Lyman joins me to explain. You can read the study and related articles by Lyman in our show notes, published at blog.acton.org. Today, I'm happy to welcome Lyman Stone to the show. Lyman is an adjunct fellow at AEI and a senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies. He often writes about population dynamics, family, and economics, and he's also the author of a new study titled Promise and Peril, The History of American Religiosity and Its Recent Decline. Lyman, thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So there's really a lot of information in this study. So to start, I would like to talk with you about what trends in religiosity have looked like in the past. Um, And you collected information on this going all the way back to um, the mid-1600s. So what did the ebb and flow of religiosity in the U.S. look like in the past? Well, the 17th century uh, was definitely a highly religious time, which is what you'd expect uh, from the stories of the pilgrims and the Puritans and the Salem witch trials and all that sort of thing. But it's often forgotten that even the southern colonies like Virginia were extremely devout places with rigorously established churches like the Anglican Church um, that policed public religion very aggressively. So at that point in time, probably... Uh, at least 70% of the population was formally church-associated and possibly as much as 90%. However, those rigorous state-established churches were actually not very popular. Uh, We see that in the number of dissenters who fled them to found places like Rhode Island. Uh, Maryland, of course, is famously founded on religious toleration, although a civil war ensues over that, and ultimately Maryland is taken over by Puritans who sort of persecute the Catholics. Um, Pennsylvania is founded for religious dissenters. Um, We get a lot of evidence of dissent, and not just in that kind of historic record, but we actually see that uh, data on religious membership shows that throughout the late 1600s and the early 1700s, Religiosity was in decline in America. We were becoming a more and more secular nation. And by the end of the 1700s, when the American Revolution occurs, we have widespread public atheism, right? You have people like Thomas Paine espousing free thinking. Uh, You have the rise of new religious movements like deism um, or uh, new 
um, uh, new religious arrangements like Unitarianism. You, of course, also then later get things like Methodism and Mormonism and all these other new religious movements. Um, but we see a lot of evidence that, in fact, the revolutionary period was one of the most secular moments in American history from many perspectives. Now, there were established state churches, but while those established state churches might have had 50, 60, or 70 percent of the population uh, within the, on, sitting in their pews in the mid-1600s, by, by, by 1800, the established churches probably had less than 5 percent of Americans uh, counted as their members. This was a historic decline for them. And of course, it was a decline driven by political choices, political unpopularity of the established churches. But from that low ebb, American religion rose again. You do get new religious movements like Mormons, Adventists, Restorationists, Methodists. Um, and you see this rise in religion from about 1800 until really about 1950 or 1960. Uh, and then from there, we've had a decline again. America is still much more, uh, many more Americans today are members of religious bodies than was the case in much of the 19th and uh, 18th centuries, um, but it is in a, a, a steady decline now. In terms of religious attendance, people probably attend church more often than in the past today as well, but some of that is just because it's easier today, because we have cars, we don't have to hitch up the wagon anymore. Um, in terms of affiliation, that is people who just say, are you Christian, are you not? We are in our most secular moment. But that's partly because in the past, uh, people didn't always have a lot of legal options. Saying that you were not a Christian was a, a quick way to get yourself denied the vote, kicked out of public office, um, or even driven out of town. So uh, we, we can't really read too much into affiliation data from before the modern period. So that's sort of a, a quick and dirty history of religiosity in America. Now, when you use the word secular, how do you define that in this context? Uh, I simply mean, um, uh, when I say that America has become more secular, I simply mean that uh, religion uh, and religious ideas uh, play a smaller role in the average person's life. That means both in terms of the place of religion in the public sphere and, uh, and a lot of my research and report is specifically about the place of religion in the public sphere, but also the place of religion in their private lives. How much uh, does religion influence the kinds of ideas uh, that shape their life, their self-identity, their social life, um, their behaviors? Uh, so across either of these metrics, what we see is, is an America today that is appreciably more secular than it was 50 years ago, though in many regards, though not all, uh, still considerably less, uh, still considerably more religious uh, than it was, say, uh, 200 years ago. Now, when you were going into this study, what were you hoping to prove? Basically, what is the purpose of this study and why is this valuable information? My main interest was simply in uh, resolving um, really an empirical dispute. Uh, what is the history of religion in America? Are we more religious than in the past or less? Uh, this should have been easy to solve, but it turns out to be a complicated question with a lot of uh, disagreeing research. So my main interest was just in sort of settling the score. I mean, it was just in telling the story of what has happened to religion in America. But then as I did that, it became impossible not to think about why this has happened, to explore 
um, what forces are driving these trends. Um, and the forces that I, that I identify as most significant um, relate to um, the uh, sort of a question of religious monopoly and religious diversity. Um, that is, mon religions that have political monopolies tend to uh, alienate the public and create enemies for themselves. Um, and then we have a second uh, component of demographic changes. The shift towards fewer children and delayed marriage is a major driver of secularization. Um, and then finally, uh, and probably one of the more controversial findings uh, in the report, is I find that uh, educational changes and policy changes related to education have had a huge role to play in driving, in really supercharging uh, the, the progress of secularization. Um, we're going to dive into that later in our conversation, um, but I, I want to ask you uh, first another question, something I'm curious about. You write in the summary of your study that, quote, basic facts about American religious history and implications for American religion today remain widely unknown. I probably wouldn't have guessed that. So why is it that this information just hasn't been you know, widely available before? <laughs> That is a question I kind of, for a while I was asking myself, but then as I put together the report, I, I came to understand why. And it's simply that it's a major pain to put it all together. Um, it's not like we have one data set that we can track all the way back to the 1600s, right? Uh, I had to put together a novel database of literally hundreds of separate religious groups and denominations and organizations and piece together their membership statistics reaching over literally centuries. Um, you know, tr putting together long-term data on a religion uh, is very difficult it's because, you know, our censuses uh, have not usually tracked at the individual level, although the U.S. used to maintain a census of religious bodies. Um, religious organizations uh, in America are very diverse. We've always had lots and lots of different religious organizations. So, it's simply very challenging. Um, it's hard to put it all together. Um, the methodology sections of my report are long-winded and very complicated. <laughs> um, so the reason it, it hasn't all been put together and why people don't widely understand this history is simply because um, it takes a very lar large amount of work to put it together. Now, you write that, quote, historic data on religion and religiosity are fragmented and contested, like you said earlier. Um, you go on to say that even contemporary data on religion can be difficult to interpret because religiosity can be measured in many ways. So let's talk about the tools that you use to measure religiosity here in this study. What are those? So the big three that, uh, that uh, students of religion want to track are um, affiliation, uh, belief and behavior. So affiliation just means we ask you, what's your religion? And you tell us Christian or atheist or whatever. So it's sort of the, the lowest bar of religion. You just you say what you're affiliated with. Then we get belief. And belief is where we ask you something like, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God? Yes or no. Or do you believe in heaven? Yes or no. Or do you believe that God is a pink polka dot unicorn, yes or no, right? So we get at specific beliefs. So that's belief. The third measure is behavior. Behavior 
uh, is where we look at a specific practice. So maybe we look at something like uh, alcohol consumption uh, per capita. That's a nice metric of a specific behavior that's particularly relevant to certain religious traditions, like, say, Mormonism, some groups of Methodism, Islam, um, and a few others. Uh, in India, it's very common to use retail sales of pork and beef to track uh, religious commitments of, of uh, Hindus and Muslims. Um, we can also look at things like church attendance as a measure of behavior. We can also look at things like the names that people give to their children. If you name, the more people who name their kids things like Elihu, Asahel, Jeroboam, the more likely it is that we're dealing with relatively religious people than people who name their kids things like Owen, William, or Henry, right? So we can look at lots of different behaviors. And so I, behaviors leave more records. So I mostly track behavior. I do very little work with specific belief because that is the most difficult uh, concept to track. Um, and most of my research looks at various behaviors. It looks at religious membership, which is a kind of behavior. I look at names. I look at political factors. I look at church attendance. Um, I look at religious violence. I look at a lot of behaviors because that's simply what we have the best data on because it leaves a paper trail. So like we talked about in the beginning, there is an ebb and a flow to religious life in America in the past. But in this period of decline that's happened in the last 75 years, this has looked different than other periods of decline we've seen. So what kind of factors are at play here that we haven't seen in the past? I know that you mentioned earlier that our law and policy environment even have a role to play here. So can you explain that more for us? What, what exactly is going on there? So we have had this past low ebb of religiosity, but the world in 1800 was very different than the world in 2020, and really in two specific ways. One is that in 1800, uh, the political infrastructure uh, that Americans inhabited was generally still favorable to religion. And although religiosity had declined on average, American elites were still quite religious. So you can look at legal documents and identify religious words in those and see that religious language still permeated um, the, our political speech, our legal cases. Um, religiosity still shows up very prominently. Religious words do in fictional books. Religious character labels show up a lot. Um, so religion still occupied a place of cultural salience. Um, it was still something in particular that, that elites practiced. Um, furthermore, uh, so that, that's one, one thing that religion had in its favor 220 years ago at its previous low ebb. Another thing it had in its favor was that population was growing through very high levels of immigration, through uh, high birth rates, um, and through comparatively low, I mean, very high compared to today, but low compared to that day and age, comparatively low death rates. The American population was growing explosively. Um, and the result was even if religion was shrinking as a share of the population, the total number of religious people was continuing to grow. 
So even if they were losing social prominence, churches could still afford to buy new properties. Seminaries could open because the demand for new ministers was expanding. Today, the situation is very different. In this decade, 2010 to 2020, this is probably the first time in American history where the total number of people who adhere to or practice any religion actually declined. And this is a very different situation than simply declining as a share of population, because declining in absolute numbers means that it's harder to support those churches. There's fewer people donating. It's harder to support a seminary because there's fewer churches that need pastors. Uh, You simply get um, a a systematic uh, financial problem for religious institutions. Um, And this is driven by low population growth generally. The decline in share of population is not unprecedented. But because population growth is very low in America today due to relatively low rates of immigration and extremely low rates of and extremely low birth rates and in recent years relatively high death rates, uh, we have a situation where the total number of religious people is actually declining. One thing you also write about is that Policy specifically in education has a causal relationship to declining religiosity, not just a correlation. So how is that? What have you observed there? So a lot of people have this image of secularization where what happens is a kid grows up in a religious family uh, and then the family tries to pass on their religion. And then the kid leaves home at about age 18 and they become a godless heathen. Right? That's the image a lot of people have in their head of what's happening, is that secularization happens to adults. There's this image that the rise of irreligion in America is driven by the decisions of adults to leave the church, to leave the religion they grew up in, to adopt a modern or scientific worldview or anything like that. This view is, is complete nonsense. There's no evidence for it. From age 18 to 22, religiosity rises persistently throughout the rest of life. The, the, the course of secularization the, in a person's life, on average, occurs entirely between the ages of 12 and 18. That is to say that we can account for virtually the entire long-run change in religiosity in America by looking at things that are happening in families. We can look at household environment, educational environment as the driving force. Now, most of the causal evidence from this is not original research that I produced. It's simply other studies that I've identified. You know, I'm happy to walk through some of those studies, um, but suffice to say there is a lot of evidence um, from various countries looking at times where they um, were basically where they changed the laws around education to restrict religious education uh, that found that finds that when you restrict religious education, uh, people become less religious. And this is not driven by people becoming more educated. In fact, in some cases, Restrictions on religious education, like in France in the late 19th century, may have actually resulted in less education because the religious sector used to be such a big part of the educational system that restricting it made it harder for people to get educated. And even with less education, people became less religious. 
Why? Because the driving factor for religiosity or for irreligion is about that formative period in your teenage years. It's not about when you're two years old. It's not about when you're seven years old. It's not about when you're 27 years old. It's about your teens. It's about if in your teens you have role models who model for you what a life of meaning and excellence looks like. Uh, it matter, it, it's about whether your peer groups reinforce these things. Um, and I should note, this is not just about brainwashing your child with religion. There's no evidence that people become atheists after this period, right? That once people's religiosity is, is sort of set uh, between the ages of 12 and 18, on average, it's basically set for life. Um, it drifts upward over time as people get married and have children, but it's not a huge change. Um, so it's not like we're just, oh, if we don't get people then, the, it's not like if we don't get people religious then, they'll never become religious. If they don't become atheist then, they don't become atheist ever. Um, it's simply the case that teenage religion uh, sets the tone for the rest of life. Now, what role do the Blaine Amendments play in placing a barrier against education grounded in this Judeo-Christian tradition in religion? Mm -hmm. So um, that's a great question. And it kind of brings together two ideas. One, the idea that religious monopolies create enemies who, uh, which drive secularization. And two, uh, the role of secular education. So in the 1840s, America began to have something very unique happen. We had a lot of immigrants arrive, but not just a lot of immigrants. We'd had, we'd had immigrants before, but a lot of immigrants with a very different religion than most Americans. At that time, the dominant religi religious, trend, religious tradition in America was Protestantism, and many of these immigrants were Catholics. And of those who were Protestants, many were Lutherans. And both of these people were rather suspicious to the, pro to the local Protestant uh, majority. So in order to defend the country from these uh, pernicious and dangerous foreign values, and you can read the, the, the political speeches people gave, we often talk about this movement as a nativist, anti-immigrant movement, but it, I don't, I'm not sure that's entirely correct. What we really see is not so much economic arguments against immigrants stealing their jobs, but religious arguments that, that these people will corrupt society with their Catholicism, or in some cases their Lutheranism. Um, we see arguments about religion. The first major nativist uh, moment of political violence is the burning of a Catholic convent in Massachusetts. Um, so uh, what we see is that there's this wave of anti-Catholic sentiment by the Protestant majority and the Protestant elite. And it culminates in Blaine Amendments, which were constitutional amendments intended to prevent public money from supporting Catholic education. That is to say, to enshrine bigotry against Catholics into law. Um, and they worked. In the states that passed these amendments, Catholic education was denied public funding, um, which had the result of making it much harder for um, Catholic churches to um, uh, achieve the same scale uh, that they did in some other places. Although even places without Blaine Amendments um, generally uh, saw a shift away from uh, public support of um, religious education. 
Now, of course, at that time, public schools were still rather religious. It's just they weren't Catholic, which, of course, was very important to the people passing these amendments. But over time, the jurisprudence around Blaine Amendments changed. They ceased to be used to just discriminate against Catholics, and they came to be used to keep all religion out of public schools. What began as discrimination ended in secularization. What began with a monopolistic uh, religious group, Protestants, trying to use the law to shut out their competition, Catholics, ended in the secularization of the entire educational system um, and a long-run decline in religiosity across all groups. And we have a corollary to that today. Um, we're still, Blaine Amendments are still a problem. They're still, in my view, bigoted. Um, they're still um, an absurd attack on the freedom of parents to, uh, to choose um, uh, the education for their children that they want. Um, I still think that they're un-American, but we actually have a new wave of discriminatory laws that I believe are going to end in secularization, and that is uh, anti-Sharia laws. We see these laws being passed in many states to limit the extent of Islamic law being used, especially in civil cases, like family cases. This is being portrayed as protecting Americans from a hostile foreign religion. In fact, sometimes the laws are, are labeled as anti-foreign laws. Um, but in practice, what it's doing is it's prohibiting the consideration of religious principles in, uh, in legal cases. That's, when it comes down to it, that's what these, these, these pieces of legislation are doing. It takes absolutely zero imagination to understand how eventually this is going to be used to uh, deny Jewish people their right to settle disputes under Jewish law. Eventually, it's going to be used to deny Christians their right to settle disputes in civil, in civil cases and family cases um, according to our own moral vision. This is something that it's beginning in discrimination, but it's going to end in secularization. So this is yet another case of a dominant religious tradition. In this case, my own tradition, the Judeo-Christian religious tradition, trying to shut out a competitor, and it's going to end badly for all of us. In your study, you also say that, quote, alongside decline in the extent of religious beliefs and behavior, the social, political, and legal environment in America has become less hospitable to virtually all forms of religion over the past 75 years, like we've just been talking about. Um, you know, often I hear that if religiosity in America is declining, that means as a society, we're really becoming more neutral. But you prove that's not the case. So... Uh, where are we seeing this? Where do we get the idea that, you know, we're, we're more neutral now? So um, neutrality is in the eye of the beholder. Um, the example I like to use is human sacrifice because it's, it's just jarring enough to make people understand what I'm talking about. If your religion requires you to conduct human sacrifice, then laws prohibiting murder are limiting your religious freedom. That's simply, the, that's simply that's a factual statement. Now, most of us would say, we don't care if that limits your religious freedom. Laws against murder are important. Allowing you to murder us would limit all of our freedoms. But, as, so as long as society does not have very many human sacrificers in its midst, laws restricting murder are not an important restriction on religious freedom because no one feels restricted by them. 
But if we had a lot of people who believed in human sacrifice, laws restricting human sacrifice would make a lot of people feel like their religious liberty was being restricted. Now, we might be okay with restricting that particular liberty, but they would feel that way. So it's very difficult to come up with a neutral account of religious liberty. Um, a, a very real example of this in American history is about polygamy. Uh, for a considerable part of American history, um, polygamy, polygamy was not formally banned because you didn't need to, because there weren't polygamists. However, uh, with the rise of Mormonism, uh, polygamy became a very live issue. Many states banned polygamy. Uh, and, of course, um, the U.S. government refused to, to allow Utah to be a state until they effectively um, legislated against polygamy. Now, today, Mormonism no longer practices polygamy for most Mormon sects. But polygamy might become legal again. Public support for polyamory is rising. So is religious liberty being infringed on by restrictions on polygamy or not? Well, Mormons today no longer believe in practicing polygamy. But if we hadn't banned polygamy, maybe they still would. And a growing number of people do begin to support polyamory. All of this is to say that it's very complicated to identify um, religious, sort of religious liberty for whom. Nonetheless, I try to do so. I try to identify groups that faced some restriction on their religious practices um, and, uh, and identify that. Um, and I find that there has been a long-run decline in official legal discrimination. However, um, there has been a decline, uh, an increase in some informal discrimination. That is, we've seen a, a rise in religious violence over the last 50 years. Um, a rise in religious violence, especially against Jewish people, um, but also against Christians, although at a much lower level in total. Um, we've seen, um, and of course, uh, the, the group in America that experiences the least religious violence is atheists. Um, so uh, this is according to FBI hate crime data. Um, so all that to say, it's very difficult to say exactly exactly how things are going in terms of um, discrimination against religious people. But what we can say um, is that there has certainly been an increase in religious violence in the last 50 years, um, and that it appears to be affecting many different religious groups. Um, Jews have been the number one target, um, but many Christian groups have been targeted as well. I'd also like to touch on how when religious liberty does decline, it doesn't affect only those who uh, are religious. <laughs> it's a common good. And in a way, I think religious liberty is really um, one of our foundational liberties. Um, would you agree on that? Absolutely. 100%. I mean, religious liberty is a specifically protected category, which I think would generally be recognized, including in, in U.S. law in many cases, as an extension of the wider liberty of conscience. And if you fail to protect the visible, sort of the, uh, the tip of the iceberg of freedom of conscience, that is the visible uh, freedoms of conscience, like religion, um, then you really, can't, uh, you really can't guarantee that you're going to protect all those other conscience liberties 
uh, that rest underneath that visible cap. In the past, when religiosity did go up, what do you find drove that? That's a good question. Um, A variety of forces drove it, um, but a big one was simply um, uh, that the disestablishment of religion in America, um, that is the loss of religious legal privilege, sort of surrendering the monopoly, um, did wonderful favors to American religion. It opened the floodgates to innovation, uh, to um, new religious movements, uh, figuring out a way to connect people to religious ideas. The most successful of these new religious movements was Methodism. It rose from being hardly anything at all in the late 19th century to being uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, religious traditions in America by the middle of the 19th century. Um, and, and remains today one of the largest religious traditions in America. Um, uh, and the research on how groups like this grew is, is not mysterious. Um, they just put a lot of sweat into it. They just went door to door, town to town, setting up churches and trying to expand their, their sect. Um, and what we saw was a thriving of religious competition. Beyond that, um, at that time, Um, while Americans did not get much education on average, um, a lot of the education they did get was relatively friendly to religion. People learned to read by reading the Bible. Um, It's not that they were necessarily being forced to practice religion. It's just that's how they were learning to read. Um, People learned to spell by spelling religious sentences. People learned math with word problems that were religious in nature. Religion was simply highly salient in American society, especially up until the the Civil War. However, after the Civil War, as Blaine amendments became more and more common, the demand for explicitly non-sectarian educational curriculum drove an increasing secularization of printed material. Um, And as printed material became more secular, um, so did the the sort of intellectual and imagined worlds people lived in. Having studied this now over a long period of time, what are some of your largest uh, personal takeaways from this study? That's a great question. Um, my one of my big takeaways from this is is just understanding how much uh, religious leaders today are swimming upstream as they try to. Uh, preserve or extend the the size of their congregations, um, that they are really, they're really fighting a historic tide. Um, This is not some fleeting change. This is an epochal shift in American religion. Um, And it's one that is occurring on many levels in terms of the public place of religion, the place of religion in people's private lives, the prestige of religion, the legal position of religion, um, so it's quite, uh, quite a challenging thing. Um, as someone who's, who's vocationally, I'm, I'm, I live in Hong Kong as a missionary uh, here, um, and it's really raised my awareness of how much we are really swimming upstream here. Um, on the other hand, uh, it has given me a great deal of encouragement. Um, these are not the most secular days in American history. This is not uh, unprecedented. There is nothing new under the sun. 
Um, and ultimately, this too shall pass. Um, for a variety of reasons, I think that the next generation of Americans may actually uh, see sort of a bottoming out of the pace of decline in religion. Um, uh, it seems uh, likely that uh, as school choice expands, that more kids are going to have a different religious environment growing up. Uh, more and more churches are becoming aware of this kind of problem and so are working harder to catechize kids. Um, and uh, um, the, the historic recession and coronavirus and all these things that made my generation uniquely unlikely to have children um, and to delay marriage even longer seem likely to not be repeated. These were sort of once-in-a-century events. Hopefully they will remain once-in-a-century or once uh, once in a long time. Um, so I think the next generation, there's a decent chance that they may have a much more moderate pace of decline in religiosity. In an attempt to bring people back to the church, um, many churches are trying to get people in the pews by either making their services more contemporary or opening up you know, coffee shops in their churches or holding events. Um, but in the end, it's, it's really preaching the gospel, which gives me more hope than anything that in the end, you know, ultimately it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, that can really turn this around. Absolutely. Well, I'm afraid we're all out of time today, but Lyman, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. My pleasure to be on with you. Thank you so much for listening to Act In Line. Our podcast team has a lot of fun putting this show together for you. And really, at the end of the day, what matters most to our team is that we're covering stories and topics that matter most to you. We love hearing from you, so don't hesitate to reach out and let us know what you think of the show or let us know what you'd like to hear covered. You can email us at actinline at actin.org.